Taxpayer Talks is brought to you by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility and is made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. If you want to support our work, you can visit texastaxpayers.com slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. All right, everyone. Last week of session, welcome to Taxpayer Talks. I'm Tim Harden, president of Texas for Fiscal Responsibility, here with Jeremy Kitchen, our executive director. How are you doing? Hey, doing okay. So we have, what, five five days left? Something like Something that? Something like that, yeah. No, who's counting? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So uh, signing die or the last day of legislative session is Memorial Day, which is uh, this coming Monday. And so uh, we are recording this today on Wednesday, uh, which is the last day for the Senate to he- hear bills. And so uh, we're just kind of focusing on uh, this this episode, what's going on, what's died, what still has a chance and kind of some of the things we've focused on. And so I think uh, we want to start off with Uh, kind of been our main piece, which is property tax reform uh, in SB3. Jeremy, why don't you give us an update on where we're at on SB3? Sure. So listeners might recall, right, because we talk about it so often that, you know, at first it seemed like there wasn't going to be much property tax relief to come out of this session because the House and Senate could not agree on the approach, right? Uh, The House had had their prioritized approach uh, via Speaker Phelan and leadership there. And then you had Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who had his prioritized approach. Both have passed, right? Right, their priorities um, across to the other chamber. There was no movement on it. There was a stalemate. There were some childish memes that went back and forth for the last month. And then suddenly, uh, the beginning of last week, it kind of broke broke through the House to where Senate Bill 3, right, uh, that had already passed the Senate, uh, got passed, you know, out of the House Ways and Means Committee, made the way through the process, made its way through the House, um, and ultimately, you know, was, was certainly headed in the right direction for Texas taxpayers, um, ultimately became kind of a fusion of approaches between the House and Senate. It, it, it included the appraisal cap reform, the lowering of the appraisal caps. It included the maintenance and operations compression, which of course we favor, and it included a homestead exemption. In fact, it included a larger homestead exemption uh, increase than that of when Senate Bill 3 left the Senate. And so where we're at currently, uh, because we are now getting beyond these deadlines is you know, the Senate basically has to make a choice on whether they're going to concur with um, the House's version of Senate Bill 3, or if they're going to send it to what's called a conference committee um, here, and it'd be a quick turnaround on a conference committee, um, and they get to hash out or reconcile the differences before the end of the legislative session. So it does appear that there's potentially light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to property tax relief, uh, and maybe something that taxpayers feel, but it's important to note that it is not a path to elimination. Yeah, correct. And, and, you know, I, I feel pretty confident. I think you feel the same way that we're going to get something right. It, yeah. it, it, the question is how much, uh, and, and is the Senate going to water this bill down? And and I kind of want to talk about why they would water it down and, mm-hmm. and what they've done in the past. And, you know, from what we've heard, and this is speculation, right? Uh, the issue that they're dealing with right now is did they allocate enough money in the budget? Mm-hmm. Um, which is still, we still haven't gotten the report on that, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and so they they allocate a specific uh, amount of money. I believe it's around 10 to 12 billion. We don't know because we haven't seen the final, uh, you know, committee report on it. Um, but that is not enough, we don't believe, uh, to cover the fiscal note on uh, SB3. And so uh, that's what people think they're trying to reconcile this. Are they going to have to lower the homestead exemption? Are they going to have to reduce the amount of compression? Or are they going to increase the amount of allocation in the budget? Uh, that could cause problems with the constitutional spending limit. I think we're within about a billion dollars, maybe $2 billion, depending on, uh, or maybe $3 billion, depending on the version of the budget that comes out. We just, we just don't know. 
um, that they would have to break that constitutional spending limit in order to allocate as much money as SB3 is trying to give. And so- Or, or um, as we talked about yesterday, not to interrupt you, but is, I don't know, cut somewhere else, right? To provide- yeah, well, that would be the the most practical, right? Yeah. It's just like <laughs> take away from, you know, all this corporate yeah. welfare and all mm. of the, or higher ed or any of this other stuff sure. that that is, is, is being inflated with all this money. Um, that would be the conservative approach, right? right. Uh, but I, I don't think either of us think that's their first option typically, no. right? Like their first go-to is good government, right? Um, and so that's where we're at with SB3. I do think that it would just be so toxic for them not to pass anything. And so I think uh, we're going to get something path, passed. But if you if you look at like, for instance, last session and what happened with property tax reform, uh, there was a big push for property tax reform, uh, push for compression. Uh, and as it went along the process, uh, the bill kind of just got weaker and weaker. They introduced like, I think it was a COVID rebate. Um, and then they ended up kind of reconciling bills like this. They went to conference and then out of conference, they went to the homestead exemption, uh, just increasing it from 25 to 40, like $15,000, which was ended up being like 170 bucks uh, for, for the average Texas home. So we went from, I think, starting off the session to around probably eight or $900. I'm, I'm trying to remember two years ago, but $800, $900 for the average section and savings. And then after conference committee report was over, we ended up with like 150 or 170, something like that. And so this is pretty typical, uh, especially when it comes to things like property tax relief. And so are we going to see that typical trajectory where they come out of uh, either, either I, I imagine they're going to go conference. Let's just put it that way. I, I don't think they're going to concur with the amendments. I could be wrong. I'm just speculating. But once they do go to conference if they do i think they're going to have to manipulate the bill in some way to make it work uh, according to what what their budget says uh so yes we will get something the question is uh is it going to get worse or is it going to stay the same i don't think it's going to get better but yet again that's speculation i i mean the last thing i would say on this is that again i think it's worth reiterating the governor has completely been absent on this issue at least publicly um i mean he hasn't said anything right even via social media or anything really in like a month and a half uh, and you know this is allegedly one of those emergency items right that he named um at the beginning of session he he has not said whether he favors suddenly the newer version of senate bill three he hasn't tried to use the bully pulpit to really kind of push it over um the edge or anything it's kind of been a weird um, sort of thing for something that's allegedly a priority of the of the governors, right? And I think it bears mentioning once again that he was originally very supportive, as he said multiple times, a path to elimination of school maintenance and operations portion of the tax. And he's been silent uh, all session on on whether or not that is something um, he supports. So, yeah. Well, uh, why don't you give us an update on HB1, the uh, General Appropriations Act, the budget? Uh, we're, we're still in the dark there. Why don't you explain what's going on? I wish I had much of an update. I mean, I think the reality <laughs> is is that, you know, this is the the one thing they're constitutionally bound to do every session. Um, and we, as we've said multiple times, right, uh, even at the beginning of session when we talked about the budget process, that it would go to a conference committee. It always does, right? They reconcile the differences. They get permission to go out of the bounds, right? And consider stuff that maybe wasn't amended or changed, right? On the floors of each house and, and the House and Senate chambers. Um, but I think the weird thing is, is that it's still in conference committee, right? We haven't seen a conference committee report and we've got five days left of the legislative session. Now, I still imagine we're going to pass a budget, right? Uh, I think the question is, is how large is that budget ultimately? How, how large have we 
economically grown government. It is not a frozen Texas budget, which of course we favor and we've talked about several times before. Uh, but as of this recording, we still have not seen a conference committee report. We still have not seen the final version of the budget. We don't know if it's going to be between the 302 billion as it passed the House or 308 billion as it passed the Senate, or if it's going to be even more right and come right up to that constitutional spending limit you talked about earlier. We don't know uh, to your point, you know, how much has been uh, it will finally be put towards property tax relief and that sort of stuff. Um, there's still a lot of unknown with only five days left. And we say five days. The reality is it's like it's only like two or three yeah. <laughs> or conference committee reports have to be accepted. And so this thing's going to pop out here in the next day, two, three days, maybe today. I don't know. Um, and it's going to be a quick turnaround. And I think the, the thing I'd say on this before we discuss is like, if I'm a lawmaker, and it very obviously seems like lawmakers just don't care, which is a shame. But if I was a lawmaker that truly cared about the budget, the one thing I'm constitutionally bound to do, I'd be frustrated that like I'm about to see this huge document get spit out in front of me and be expected to vote on the, the thing for the ninth largest economy in the world in just a matter of hours, right? Uh, since since it gets spit out, that's that's frustrating. Taxpayers should demand better. Yeah, you know, and 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 you you and I both being in the building understand like, you know, staff is under stress right now. There's a lot of stuff they're going through. You know, we've been going through a lot of bills, which is very similar to what we did when we were in that building. And so to to pile on top of that, oh, hey, by the way, check out this massive <laughs> conference committee report and yeah. try and figure it out. I mean, I, I think most people, they're just going to kind of look at the, the bottom line, like how much are we going to spend? Um, and, you know, when we look at that, uh, it's at, I think the Senate version was what, $308 billion with, including yeah. federal funds. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we've put out, you know, lots of charts and graphs on this kind of thing. And, and one of the things we've, we've said over and over again is we were on track to triple our budget since 2000. I believe in 2000, we were around 90 or 95 billion for the biennium. And so we have absolutely, uh, that would, what tripling would be what, 270. And yeah. so we were almost there last cycle at 265 and now we're over three. So we have more than tripled, even if they, you know, they cut back a couple billion dollars. We have more than tripled our budget in the last 20 years. And population has only grown about forty percent in that same uh, that that same time frame. And so, even if you're you're you know throwing in that that um, that inflation you know added that that conservative metric, uh, that's usually about two to three percent uh, per year. Save the last couple of years, right? And so we're nowhere near uh, a conservative trajectory on our budget. We have more than tripled it, and so. You know, even if they cut back, you know, to 306 or 305 or 304, we have grown our budget massively. This is why we were advocating for a frozen budget, because even if we didn't grow our budget at all, we still would be close to tripling our budget since 2000. Yeah. And it's just not conservative. Uh, you, you can't pass a massive budget like this and say that you're for limited government. Uh, we've said time and time again that the way and the metric we use to see if we're growing government is spending. It's really that simple. And so if we're spending more money, we are growing government. And so for all of those uh, folks who proclaimed that they're conservatives and that they believe in limited government, if you're consistently voting for more government through spending and the budget would be one of those things, well, then you're being hypocritical uh, because you do not actually believe that because if you actually believe that you would vote against more spending and against more government. But here we are with that same status quo where you know we're limiting government by slowing the growth of government, right? And so that's not really limiting government at all. And so I'm interested to see the conference committee report, but I 
don't anticipate that there's going to be any major changes to it. They're probably sure. going to shuffle some stuff around. Maybe, you know, they reduce it by a few billion dollars. Maybe that's how they make room for a little extra property tax relief. But it is a shame that we are, you know, five days to sign die, a few days to, and, and we haven't even seen it. We haven't even seen it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't remember waiting this long budgets i feel like it, it, came out it like definitely comes out yeah there's like a few weeks kind of lead time it, this is the latest that i recall now granted i haven't gone and looked at the, the yeah. i can go pull that but yeah. i that i don't remember it being in the final week of session that we see the conference no. committee report for this thing no, so. i don't remember voting on the budget past the the deadlines yeah. right um but hey you know maybe we could be wrong but um <laughs> so uh we we have that and then of course we like so we are recording on Wednesday and we just put out our final intent notice in the Senate and HB5 which is the the corporate welfare program we've been talking about ad nauseum uh for the last few weeks has made it on intent and so it has today essentially to pass and there is I would assume hundreds of bills on intent. I haven't even looked at the full intent calendar, but yeah. uh, there is hundreds of bills on intent. And so uh, there is no longer, I think there's a one day rule on intent that's expired Correct. already. So they can yep. basically bring up whatever they want, whenever they want. And mm -hmm. so the question is, are they going to bring up uh, HB5, which is the replacement for 313 tax abatements? This is where we're giving uh, you know major corporations basically you know, no property taxes or 90% property taxes on average for 10 years at the expense of taxpayers. And so, you know, if you watch the the committee, um, you, I think Schwartner mentioned uh, things like possibly lowering that from 100 to 50 and maxing out at 50%. There's a lot of ideas, um, but I'm not convinced that's actually going to happen if they bring it up on the floor. I think they have, they've proven that there's a very, very hard push from kind of the Austin establishment, which would include corporate lobbyists to get this thing passed. Uh, and it's ultimately going to result in billions and billions of dollars over the course of the next you know, decade um, out of taxpayers' pockets into the pockets of, of corporations, many of whom uh, oppose conservatives in our agenda and have, have been caught you know, canceling uh, conservatives. And so it's a bad look uh, for that reason, but it's even worse look because corporate welfare is not conservative and both parties oppose this. And so I, I don't know how it's going to shake out. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think it, you know, the, the cynic in me says that if it's going to be put on intent, it likely will pass. It was probably the subject of a deal right between uh, the Lieutenant governor and uh, the, the house speaker. And let's say the governor, right. All the, I think the writing is on the wall. The real question in my mind is just regarding timing, right? Let's say it does pass today. Of course, we're recording on Wednesday. Uh, it is in a different form than it was when it left the house. So it's going to go have to go back to the house and the house is going to have to say okay we accept the amendments right or we go to a quick conference committee right kind of the same thing as the other stuff and time is of the essence here now i don't want that to be construed as me like defending and wanting this thing to pass look however this dies we're happy with right at the end of the day um, <laughs> assuming it can die um, i just i think the fact that it made it out of committee the fact that it has been put on senate intent um and the fact that the lieutenant governor hasn't really been vocal in opposition about it, I think tends to, uh, to at least for me, uh, bodes that the writing is on the wall that it will pass. Now, I think it says everything about how terrible this is that they are waiting until the last possible minute to do it, right? And I think Texas taxpayers should take note of that. Um, but, you know, who knows? Anything could happen. There were a lot of lieutenant governor priorities that died as a result of the House's inaction last night on the calendar. And so maybe as a result, he kills this thing. 
on the Senate side. Yes, both are that are that vindictive, right? So um, I, I don't know. We'll see. You know, uh, we'll have updates obviously on social for anyone that's interested as this thing moves through the process. Yeah, you know, what's amazing to me on HB five is you know if you look at all a lot of the other bills, it seems like all of these bills just have multiple problems with them where you're having point of order after point of order after point of order called on bills, a lot of them sticking. Last night, I think there was like four or five point of orders called Mm -hmm. kind of going into the last few hours. I don't think he actually ruled on them. They just kind of, I think, delayed the bills, right? But but where's all of the point of orders for HB5, right? I think maybe there's one or two called in the house. Um, But you would imagine if everyone is so sloppy and lazy with all of these other bills that there's probably multiple points of order on this. It's it's kind of a little too late for that, uh, honestly, but it's just it's curious how a lot of other really important conservative legislation tends to get called uh, on point of orders, sent back into the process. Uh, but it doesn't seem like uh, there's a whole lot of that going on with this I, specific piece of I think I mean, I think this is worth talking about. It's been as as we both former legislative staffers, right? Like there's always points of order, right? Especially obviously in the House where it kind of matters a little bit more on how they how they approach these things in the parliamentary procedure. I was talking to a friend about this yesterday, the day before. I don't know that I recall this many points of order just by being called sustained or this like weird practice, which is really just not transparent at all, right? Which is they negotiate something privately, right? So the general public has no idea what's being, you know, they're waiting an hour while the point of order is being considered, right? And what something has been negotiated, they tell the author, right? They're like, hey, let's, you're going to delay potentially kill your own bill and then this person's going to withdraw the point of order so that way the speaker and leadership team kind of gets diffused accountability right they don't have to rule on the point of order and create precedent and as as people that not you support transparency you should absolutely be against that practice i mean and and the real shame is that you of course don't have Republicans or more conservative lawmakers, right, appealing the ruling of the chair when there is a ruling, right, or 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 demanding that there is one to begin with that something gets put in the record. Uh, it's completely just non-transparent, and I feel like it's a practice that's gotten more and more abused the last uh, few sessions. And you know, as as someone in the general public who just watches this sort of stuff, you you just have to ask, like, what is happening, right? Like, uh, if if they really wanted to pass a lot of these conservative bills, they could, um, and it's a shame that they're they're abusing the process yeah. um in this way i think i think what we we've seen this session uh, all session long right is a lack of fighting and i think it's just a complacent gop right especially those who proclaim to be kind of more right more conservative they've just kind of accepted the system as it is and there's no really willingness to push back and to do things like challenge the ruling of the chair which i believe takes what is it 25 members i believe uh, so yeah uh 25 members to challenge so you know it wouldn't take a ton of gop reps and you would think on some of those especially those more important social bills right that kept getting point of order and sent back yep. uh, to committee that hey why don't we try and push back and challenge the ruling of the chair on some of these things but there wasn't even there, there's not there's no fight in people and so yep. uh, i i think most Republicans, most conservatives across the state who elected this majority, you know, if if they really fully knew what was happening in the House, uh, they would be extremely upset. And, and, you know, this might be the year they find out about that. We sure. we shall see. Um, I, I think I, I want to kind of bring up what's going on with uh, with Phelan and this uh, this viral video and things like that. Of course, I've made a couple memes about it, you know, in in jest. Um, 
But, you know, for those that don't know, and we'll we'll likely show the clip here, um, there was a clip that was, I think, uh, originally sent by what, Greg Price on on I Twitter. believe so, on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and so he said, you know, hey, is, is feeling drunk or is he having a stroke? Mr. Speaker, I'll move adoption. Mr. Campbell, send that amendment. The amendment is acceptable to the author. Is there objection to the opposite amendment? The chair has done. The amendment is adopted. The chair recognizes Mr. Mr. Johnson of Harris. Mr. Johnson of Harris to speak in opposition to the bill. The chair recognizes Ms. Niave Criado to speak in opposition to the bill. You know, you watch the footage and and feelings like kind of stumbling over his words. He's kind of slurring really bad. And it certainly appears as though something's going on, right? Like uh, e either he's inebriated or maybe something else is going on. And so there was kind of speculation over the weekend as far as what was happening. Uh, there's been complete silence from the speaker's office. And of course, there's people in both camps, you know, some people saying, oh, you know, he's got a medical condition and, and, or, or he was just tired or, or this or that. I think, you know, the, the, you know, the general consensus of folks who are watching this clip and it's on TikTok, it's on Reddit, it's on Twitter, it's on, it's everywhere, right? It's trending everywhere. Um, almost everyone is coming to the conclusion, man, he sounds drunk, right? Now, are we saying that? No, not necessarily. Uh, we're not, we're not coming to a conclusion, uh, but that is what kind of, um, the consensus of people has, has come to. And so then we had a new development yesterday. We're on Wednesday. So Tuesday. So Ken Paxton comes out and asks him to resign for being drunk. And so, you know, what does Ken Paxton know? I don't know. Like to, to be fair, like the house was investigating or the investigating committee was kind of investigating Ken. And I believe the whistleblower nonsense. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, they, so was this, you know, uh, Paxton kind of sticking a uh, feeling in the eye. Does he have evidence? Otherwise there's really been complete silence from the speaker's office. So they've refused to comment on this, which I would say is not a good look, right? If there really is something going on, if, if he had, if he had a stroke or if he has some medical condition or he crossed some pills or, or something like that, you know, the, the right thing to do is to be transparent, right? Uh, I think, I think if, if they come forward and kind of show proof, Hey, here's, here's what's going on. I think most people are like, Hey, okay, we understand. Yeah. We're not going to make fun of a guy for, for doing that. But the, the bigger problem, and, I, and I'll, I'll let you speak to this a little bit is, you know, we were both in that building and we know, right, that they drink on the house floor. It is not a secret. They set up bars uh, in, in the members lounge or in the back hallway. Uh, there's been multiple members that have like, I think Niave was arrested for a DUI. Huberty was arrested for a DUI. Also caught on the house floor, I think during budget night with that, yeah. that big Phoenix thing that happened mm -hmm. years ago, drunk, right? And there's many, many other members where it's very well known that they're alcoholics and that they drink on the floor. We don't have to name all of their names, but it is a common practice that they drink on the floor, especially the closer they get to sign and die and everybody's kind of in a partying mood. And so, you know, the accusations that he was drinking are not unfounded, but are, is there, you know, definitive proof that he was? Well, no, there's not. And so we're kind of in this area of like a lot of speculation, but complete silence from the speaker's office. Yeah, whether he was drunk or not, I, I don't know, right? I, I think people can watch this clip and, and kind of make that own their own determination there. I do think it provides for the opportunity uh, to kind of just show 
taxpayers, Texans in general, how concerning it is, how cavalier lawmakers are sometimes, uh, if not a majority of the time with kind of the, their job and the way they pursue things. I want to be clear. I, I actually have no problem with anyone drinking. I mean, they want to have alcohol in their office, everything. That's great. I, I worked in offices where alcohol was in the office, right? Um, and, you know, adults can make decisions, but the same time we should be electing people that right are adults about those decisions um you know as the ninth largest economy in the world you you briefly mentioned it right but i think back as a staffer the drunken escapades that i watched not only lawmakers but other staff right do on budget night right when they're considering you know at that time 250 260 billion dollar budgets you know, taxpayers should absolutely demand better. Um, I think the thing, you know, ultimately this kind of, if it's a back and forth between the speaker's leadership team, and let's say people like Ken Paxton, is that all of this, what it should bring to light to people that maybe aren't avid watchers of Texas politics, right, in general, is that we need to do better. We need to elect better people in these positions, more responsible people, right? And, you know, look, at the end of the day, uh <laughs> It's it's a personal responsibility issue, and I, I would hope that in the event that the speaker was inebriated, that he would say something about it, right? He would own up to that sort of thing. I would have a lot more respect for someone um, if they did that than just let kind of like everyone make their own uh, assumptions and, and sort of thing. But thus far, we haven't seen any comments, right, even denying it or anything like that. That's I mean, that's certainly concerning, but I think over the most concerning thing to me and what I'm glad has come to light is that people kind of get to see this happen, right? Because it happens all the time. I can tell you as a staffer, I know you can say the same thing. The amount of lawmakers that I would all the time, right, would be yelling from their offices up and down the hallways, doing all sorts of just childish things as a result of their inebriation um, is absolutely a, a thing that happens just because it happens outside the public view uh, doesn't mean it doesn't. And, and we should just demand better, I think, is, is ultimately where I land yeah, on this. No doubt. I, I think it's funny, or at least I found it comical that you know, the, all of the speakers been silent on this. There's been a number of Democrats who have come out yeah. and vehemently, you know, uh, you know, either either accused Paxton or defended feeling right. And, uh, you know, I, I think that just is telling on who who the speaker's alliance is with. Right. Because ultimately, I think most Democrats understand the dynamic of of the speaker and how really all of the past speakers have come to power in the last few decades and Democrats are completely dependent on a speaker sure. that is friendly to them to allow them to do things like they've been doing the last few days, which is chub off and kill conservative legislation, be real kind of wishy-washy on how we rule on point of orders and things like that. And so uh, it's, it's telling that pretty much in, that I've seen on Twitter, the only people who are coming out and like adamantly defending him are Democrats. The like Republicans are kind of quiet. I don't, I haven't seen any of them come out and directly defend him and say, oh, this is just Paxton, right? And so I think that's telling that we have the, the minority party defending the speaker, but the majority party for the most part kind of being silent. Maybe they're waiting to see evidence. I don't really, I don't really know, but I think Democrats know that if, if, there was ever a speaker elected that was truly elected by the majority party uh they're they're kind of screwed like they sure. <laughs> it would the, the house would look more like the senate maybe even more conservative than the senate if there if there's a speaker that actually said you know what we don't really care about your agenda we're going to deal with our agenda and you know if we have time we'll get to y'all and so uh there's been this power dynamic in the house uh really since Joe Strauss which was you know mid 2000s uh that that has favored 
uh, Democrats and favored their agenda. Now, not saying that that Republican priorities haven't passed, but I would say that nowhere near as many conservative bills would die and nowhere near as many, you know, Democrat or kind of leftist policies would have been passed had we had a different speaker. Just my opinion. Sure. I don't want to clutch my pearls. This session has been such a weird session, man. Like you had taxpayer champion Brian Slayton get get involved in, in something absolutely terrible. And it's it's a it's crazy. You know, all of this stuff that's happened this session, you have the speaker allegedly or potentially doing this too. You've got this Ken Paxton thing. You've got all sorts of other stuff just happening, percolating, it seems, behind the scenes. I, I, I don't know what it's a result of, but we should just, I think collectively it's a lesson in we need to elect better people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, stereotypes are, are, you know, stereotypes for a reason because they're usually, they're usually true. Politicians yeah. are shady. Let's just put it that way. Now, not saying that other people aren't, but you know, uh, it, the stereotypes are true. Like a lot of corruption happens. And I think that's just really a result of kind of our nature as human beings, right? Where money and power is concentrated, you're going to get corruption. And so I'm not saying I would be any different or you either, if we were putting those situations, uh, but that's a good reason to, you know, change these folks out and not let people get, you know, completely entrenched for 20, 40 years, uh, getting fresh, fresh people in there who maybe haven't been corrupted over the last few decades. So, uh, you know, so speaking of, you know, session is over. We will have our last episode of Taxpayer Talks next Thursday, and we'll kind of break down the entire session. Another thing to look forward to is mid-June, we're thinking June 19th, we're going to release the Fiscal Responsibility Index. This is our main flagship. This is where we have spent... Uh, countless hours, you know, analyzing bills. We've we've noticed hundreds of bills in both the House and Senate, and we will be producing the index, which is an A through F score on how legislators have voted uh, on fiscal issues or size of government issues. And so I want to encourage y'all to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram. If you have not, please subscribe to our fiscal note. This is where our kind of our weekly update. Where we're going to keep you up to date with uh, when we're releasing this. And of course, we'll have um, really a video we're going to do where we're going to kind of shoot for about 20 or 30 minutes, just kind of breaking down what happened in the session, who scored what. We're going to have some fun awards and things like that. Uh, and I think it's going to be great. It's going to be a great resource for those uh, who are wanting to get involved in primaries. Uh, and you can see exactly how your legislator did. Uh, and of course, you can go to texastaxpayers.com to check out past indexes. So y'all be on the lookout for that. Uh, subscribe to our emails if you have not. That will keep you up to date. Um, anything we're missing, Jeremy? Nope, I don't think so. I think that covered it. Okay. Well, hey, I uh, appreciate y'all being with us. Happy signy die for everyone who is in that building and for us uh, in, the, in the coming Monday. I'm very excited we're here. And of course, we will see y'all next week with the final breakdown. Appreciate y'all. Have a good one.